You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezik, and today we're buzzing into episode 159, and like I'm usual... So, so, it feels like... I don't know if it feels like it to you. I feel like we haven't recorded a buzz. We haven't recorded in, in two weeks. Yeah, yeah. At all. Like anything <laughs> in two weeks. And so, we're not recording next week, I don't think, either. Uh, yeah, we don't have... We're, that's already we're, recorded. No, we are recording next. Oh, week. we are. That one's for, for three weeks future. from now. We're in the time loop again. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's fun getting back and doing this. It's been a crazy hectic May at the nursery. A, a lot of nurseries have expressed that this year. Yeah, it's totally. um, just a lot, lot, lot of native plants going out the door, which makes us feel really good. Um, it's also nice seeing the bank account. Go back up after after many many months of being like, oh, how much more money do we have to borrow? So that gives you a little insight on how uh, how nurseries work. That is an interesting thing. Just agriculture in general, it's so seasonal. Um, unlike yeah. some other businesses, I guess like tourism is a seasonal business, and I'm sure there's others that I'm thinking of. Um, agritourism is the combination of both, but it's like I would imagine if you're like a Rita's water ice, yeah, <laughs> or Rita, something. ice yeah. cream, yeah. that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's the nursery business is you have to make all this stuff and at a certain time of the year. And that is also the time of the year where you are not selling any of it and making any money. So you have all these bills to pay <laughs> and not any money coming in. It's like a cash flow conundrum. Yeah. And then you get to a part of the year where it's like, woo, yeah. <laughs> like Scrooge McDuck, there's money everywhere. <laughs> and, and then you're like, I got to make sure I save enough of this to get yes. through the next cycle. Yes. Or or, uh, or we're not going to make if it. If you're not good with finances, you're not going to make it oh, in the nursery oh, industry. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> and you don't have a good uh, good bank partner is yeah, another, that is another big one. Is a, specifically, And I know there's a lot of people who listen who want to get and start mm-hmm. doing this kind yeah. of stuff. It's um no a good bank partner is yeah. is extremely important because you need someone that understands the business and the cash flow of that yep, business exactly uh, farm credit is we is, use farm credit east they just understand they're specific to agriculture so they know uh hey if you even you're a crop farmer you aren't there is no money coming in until you harvest your your crop and then it's a big lump sum basically yeah. that you get at one time so they build, they put in their um, loan. Uh, loan things where it might be an interest only payment um, yeah. for the first three, four, sometimes more months. And then it's like, okay, and now you can pay, you're doing like double or triple payments the rest yeah. of the year. Um, so, yeah, if you want to start a, a native plant nursery, um, you either need to have a really good bank partner or just. Be inherently wealthy and yeah. and not have to worry about or, that, or just it's, start off small and work yeah. your way up slowly. Yep, but it's yep. you know it's, you get to a point where even we talked about it with seed. It, it's all capital expenditures that were that was years before yeah. you start to see it really pay off because oh, of yeah. the amount of equipment mm-hmm. and the amount of field and time and labor. Yeah, like it's you're operating some of these at a loss, before, mm-hmm. and you know, like going into it, you know you're operating at a loss for yeah. three to five years. Yep, exactly. So it's beware. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. 
or be informed, I guess, is better saying. So we have some follow-up. I want to – we talked about and I think we uh, had Santino salivating because we – we you you treated us all to your homemade pizza. Yes, yeah, and, I did. And you invited any listener in the area. Uh, no one showed up. Yeah, so yeah. It which was like good a, because it wasn't a real invite. But if someone did show up, I wasn't going to send them home. Listen, I'm happy but, uh, no one showed up because I found myself eating and then waiting to see how much everyone else like. Are you done? Like, is there left? Like, can yeah. I have more? Because it was that it it literally is a top piece. One of my top pizza. Thank picks. you very much. That is, and uh, it it does kind of spoil. Glowing review. I know your family said it will spoil you, and it 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 really does because it's it's one of those things that you're like, oh, I like, is this an option? Like, can I go somewhere and get this? Like, I would get this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So it very very good. Everyone in the the office raved about it. I couldn't get enough. And that wasn't even some of my best work. So it was really it was, good. It still came out pretty good. But that was uh, the two I made. I think I just made like a plain. Cheese pizza, like, yeah, and then I've had one. Did I put or the was it extra garlic? On it? I think I did. I don't. The one, yeah, the one yeah. was was cheese with garlic. garlic. It was like a Trenton tomato pie, and style. that was more, like that had the same flavoring. Like one of my favorite all time pizzas is Papa's, mm-hmm. which is the oldest tomato pie uh, pizzeria in the yeah the the country, and it it had the similar taste, but the crust was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And I know you you handmade. The yes, yeah. that, and so. then the other one is um was a, a white ramp pizza yeah very good um, as well which was really good and then that weekend um for it was mother's day and uh my mom like that was what she wanted for mother's day was for me to do that for dinner for the whole family and uh the best one i made i shouldn't say the best one the one a lot of people liked and i liked it was um was ramps sausage uh, or like Italian sausage, and then um, locust blossoms. Because yeah, that was what that we was just really talked about. Awesome. I literally walked over my tree and just grabbed the whole bunch and then checked them for bugs, <laughs> threw them on the pizza, threw some on so they'd cook, and then put some on more on later. And yeah. then I topped it with a little bit of, of honey uh, that we had from, from Arby's, and, um, and that was awesome. And it was just yeah. cool knowing that, oh, a lot of this stuff came from yeah. wild sources. So. Yeah. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was that was. I, I appreciate your review, Fran. Oh, uh, no problem. And it's 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 not even exaggerated. Like yeah. wholeheartedly. That don't was think that we're good. throwing it back to the old days where we used to do this and like it wasn't anything about native plants. This had native plants on the pizza. Yes, it has ramps yeah. and and it's, black locust blossoms. It yep, was. Yep. It, it just you know it's funny because there are people that would say some things don't don't belong on pizza that completely felt as if it belonged on pizza yeah it was it was well worth it and the, like the one that you said with local honey that kind of stuff mm-hmm. you, you can't beat that yep yep so then the the other uh piece of follow-up and this was actually meant for the last episode and then i forgot you remember it after we i remember done, right yeah. when we were done i went on and on about my my love affair with bradley Oni <laughs> and how, <laughs> how i wish he would be my friend and I was so honored that he followed our, our uh, Instagram page. And I just assumed he was our first blue check follower. That wasn't actually the case. Um, Which we was have, surprising to me. Yeah, we kidding. have another one. And I got to I gotta look up where handle is. Oh, it's the first one that popped up. Oh, then it disappeared. It is. Um, <laughs> Did you just block them? No, <laughs> no, no. It is official LK or official underscore LK Hamilton. Um, and she posts a lot of native plant stuff. And uh, but she's an author. 
And uh, I think their latest book, she has a whole series. The number one New York Times bestselling author, Laurel K. Hamilton, um, wrote a book. The latest release was called Slay, which I'm assuming came out fairly recently, I think in 2023. Very cool. So, uh, yeah, so that, that was the official number one blue check follower. We are now up to two, unless uh, for some reason Bradley only decided to unfollow us <laughs> since <laughs> since that time. As possible. Uh, if that's the case, I'm going to go home and maybe, <laughs> maybe cry a little bit. So, The other bit of update we have is, you know, of course, with the craziness and the busyness, we throw stuff out there and then can't remember the official details. But I know we're right near the deadline for – our um, native plant anthem. Yes. There has been no submissions. I know there was one person on the the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group that said they had forgotten about it and they had a couple ideas and they were going to get it in. We couldn't remember if it was this buzz or the next buzz. We're going to make the drop dead. This is our deadline. last call. We'll, we'll be, yeah, is, the next buzz. Yeah. If there's no entries, there's no winners. We're hoping to get at least one entry. It will be. We will make it our official closing music yeah. like our our fade out closing music regardless if it's good or bad yeah for uh i will i will guarantee it's our closeout music for, for one episode three, three episodes ep- three episodes we'll do three one is right. a little too low three episodes will it will be close out how about this it will be close out music for the buzz not the other episodes uh, I would episode. still only go with Two, three. three. Okay. We, I don't want to tie ourselves to this too All much right. in case it's like sabotage. You, we oh, could have a saboteur oh, come true. in and make a, a. Could you imagine Doom's native plant? Oh my gosh! Anthem fade out music. Yeah. That would be. Yeah. That would be hysterical for one or two or three episodes. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. about it. Uh, did you listen to uh, one of our listeners uh, contributed Sage Against the Machine? I did, and I'm trying to look up who did that, um, but that was. A great suggestion. A band, Sage Against yeah. the Machine, that only does songs about native plants. And yeah. they're based out of California, I think. I yeah, want to say yeah. they're West Coast. So not all the native plants match up to what we know. And they uh, don't have a whole lot of music on there. It's one one but, live album, I believe. But, uh, yeah, it was one live album. And uh, I still cannot find who the person who put it up there. I want to say it was Andrew Plunkett. But I don't remember. It might have been. It might have been. Um, thank you, Andrew, if it was you. But, uh, yeah, thank you to whoever that was. I really appreciate the song uh, California Poppy Chulo. It's probably my favorite. <laughs> and we've, we've listened to it in the office. We we've, have. We've yeah, enjoyed it. It comes up from time to time. So maybe it wasn't him. I don't know. Oh, yep, yep. It was Andrew Plunkett on, All right, uh, awesome. on April 29th posted that. Awesome. So. All right, so this is the last call. If you would like to win um, $100 of swag from the Native Plants Healthy Planet uh Store. store. Um, I don't know why I couldn't get that out from the store. And if you would like it to be our uh, closeout music for at least three episodes, this is your last chance. Take the take the long Memorial Day weekend to uh, to get it out there. You should time. be going to a, a, a some kind of gathering of some sort, whether it's just family or it's a, a larger thing. Some people might be imbibing in a drink or two or yes. 17. And... <laughs> If that's the case, what a, what better place to get together, like uh, a choir, and, and yeah. sing this this wonderful song? I I and, agree, uh, yeah. I agree. All right, let's do it. All right, what do you think? Should we we yeah, we actually kick into the? That's hot. Yes, let's do it. That's hot. All right. So for again, we keep every time we do this. It seems like a we're a broker record, but we want to say thank you and welcome to all the new listeners that have managed to find us. Uh, since the last couple episodes, 
And if you're unfamiliar with this segment, this is where Tom and I kind of talk about the plants that we're vibing, that, that we notice are hot this week. It might be in the area. It might be something that uh, someone has pointed out to us. Uh, Tom, you want to go first? Yeah, yeah. Right. So mine is um, – I, I just – I, I, I want to hear more about this. If we're being why. honest, I've actually never seen this plant in person that I know of. Oh, okay. All right, cool. But – my brother sent me a picture of it, and I was like, oh, this is something different that I've heard of. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about it a little bit. And that is lyre leaf sage, or salvia lirata. And um, so this is from a little snippet from LadybirdJohnsonWildflower.org. And uh, it's, it says, lyre leaf sage is a strictly upright, hairy perennial, one to two foot tall with a rosette of leaves at the base. The leaves are deeply, three, or deeply three-lobed with a few simple leaves higher up on the stem, Large basal leaves are purple tinged in the winter. This species has the typical square stem and two-lip blossom of the mints. It is pale blue to violet. Tubular flowers are arranged in whorls around the stem, forming an interrupted terminal spike. Uh, each blossom is about one inch long. The two-lobed lower lip is much longer than the upper, which is th- has, has three lobes. The middle one forming a sort of hood. The sepals are purplish-brown. Lyre leaf stage makes a great evergreen ground cover with somewhat uh, a juga-like foliage and showy blue, uh, blue flowers in the spring. It will reseed easily in loose, sandy soils and can form a solid cover with regular watering. It even takes mowing and can be walked on. Uh, the exposed lower lip of, of this and other salvias provides an excellent landing platform for bees. When a bee lands, the two stamens are tipped and the insect is doused in pollen. And again, that's from Lady Bird Johnson, as well as the native habitat, which is rich, rich uh, rocky, open woods, Alluvial areas, wet to dry meadows, well-drained sand or loam in Texas. It's found in sandy soils of open woods, meadows, and clearings in the eastern fourth of the state. Um, this plant seemed to be native to basically like New Jersey, Pennsylvania. seemed like it's northern edge. It was more like the southeast but west of Texas. Um, seemed like it's a native range uh, from the list of states I read. But uh, it's – like I said – I'm looking at it now. It's, it's pretty awesome. It almost bloom-wise reminds me of um – like a longer flower of uh, penstemon. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and that was kind of what I yeah. thought too. The penstemon hirsutus, that purplish yeah. color. Yeah, yeah, a little bit darker, a longer, longer bloom. It um, kind of reminds me of that. While I, the funny thing is, when I looked up, the first fact was another common name for it is cancer weed. I saw. Did that you see as well? that? Yeah. Because folk tradition, they used it to make a poultice for uh, skin cancers. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and I should take back that I. I think I haven't seen this plant in person unless I was visiting our friend well, our friends at Kind Earth Growers and John Mark Courtney uh, over there. Um, I was telling him about my garden and how I had like a bunch of Packer Aria and Tiarella and all this stuff that was trying to form this green, evergreen ground cover, right? And he gave me a flat of something, and I forget what it was. I put him in my garden. I haven't seen him since because I ended up pulling a lot of stuff out okay. and like putting yeah. – more more uh, mulch over that area, and I don't think they came back up. Um, and I don't remember if it was this or, <laughs> or not. So, John, you should tell me if that's what. I, maybe I have seen this plant before, but yeah, my brother said he found it in the ditch um, on one of our other farms. And that's pretty awesome. And, uh, and it was like again a plant I'd heard of, but wasn't that familiar with. And I was like, oh, I should plug this one because apparently it's blooming now in New Jersey. Yeah. And it's a tall bloom stalk for it too, for something mm-hmm. that's like a, an evergreen ground yeah. cover. Like yeah. it's pretty awesome. Good choice. I really like that. Yeah. My, I want to do something a little different. It's yeah. we, we've done this for what two years now uh, of the yeah. that's hots, maybe even more. Maybe and more uh, we're we're 
don't want to repeat too many choices no. unless it's for a good reason. No, and this is something I can't remember if we've done or not, but I can't help but to we, not we mention. We had to have, and friend, you took the easiest choice you could have possibly made. I do because you, you literally it's have at to our step door. Over it. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> at our the door of our office. It, it's not, I don't want to say taken over, but it's a good portion of uh, the garden right out in front of our our main office here at Pinelands Nursery, and it's right by the front door, and that is. Uh, lance leaf tick seed which is coreopsis lanceolata like at the time i did it it wasn't quite open yet like and i think it's blooming a little later than normal that's I what know. I, know, I don't know I, it can bloom march yeah. to august and for us it didn't start till the end of may i know deborah rosenthal commented mm-hmm. to me that for her it's in tennessee it's blooming a little bit later than normal yeah i i don't know if it's a little later a little I I don't remember. My brother has the phonology charts. He could tell us for sure. Yeah. But I felt like it was kind of right on time. I felt like the Baptisia and the Penzimin have bloomed much later. Yes. The Coreopsis, yeah. I felt, was about about the same. The same. Yeah. And it depends this, on the, again, this is the all part my, of the country. My little feeling that's we're, going on. We're here. like the northern, like the northern range mm-hmm. for it, so it's probably um, probably like a little later than normal if it's because it it does it is native all the way down to florida i'm sure that's where you're getting march blooms but Mm. i've also taken my description from wildflower.org lance leaf tick seed grows in small clumps but forms extensive colonies gets one to uh two foot tall uh or taller like we've 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 heard or seen uh instances where it's like three foot tall well out there's got to be close to three three foot foot, easy um has leaves uh, three to four inches long, opposite, sometimes alternate near the top where the leaves are fewer. Some of the leaves are deeply cut, almost forming three leaflets. Flower heads are yellow, one to one and a half inches across the yellow center of disc uh, flowers. Stand out distinctly from the ray flowers, which appear to be attached just uh, below them. The ray flowers are four-lobed. The yellow daisy-like flowers occur singly atop long naked peduncles. I did not know. I mentioned to you yesterday, mm-hmm. I did not know that the stem that attaches a flower to the plant was a peduncle, unlike a petiole, which attaches a leaf to the, mm-hmm. the branch. Uh, the native species has branching stems at the base, often forms sizable colonies along roadsides and old fields. A southern species, greater tick seed, uh, gets two to three foot tall and has some flower-like heads that are one to two inches wide. Um, let's see. It blooms uh, blooms through August, March to August, from Maryland to Florida, west to Texas, north to Wisconsin, sun to part, uh, sun to part shade to shade, and it is drought tolerant. And the basal foliage can be evergreen. It's not always reliable uh, as a perennial, but self seeds and keeps coming back up. So it's uh, I kind of like you do get that basal foliage, which in a mild winter it will stay like a little evergreen. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you deadhead it, it will uh, promote more blooms. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Two great choices. So I think uh, I got to look up and see if I can find some of that salvi lirata for my property. Mm-hmm. I would like to add yeah. some of that. Oh, yeah. So two great choices if you're if it's native to your area and you sound interested. Uh, I would add both of them to your your property. You can't miss. Um, you want to do some some that's hot or this or that? I guess we already yeah. did that's oh, yeah. hot. You want to do that's hot again? Uh, yeah, choice. we can do it again. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Salvia Lorata this week. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this or that. All right. So we last week uh, I had an article about uh, uh, better native plant protection in New Jersey, and Tom had a wonderful article about 
wild houseplant collecting. Not not necessarily wild houseplant, just about wild collecting and the dangers and the market they're in, which was very well written. Uh, we do have a winner, and it is me, 17 to 11. I would have voted for you on the last one. I understand. I would have voted for me too. I understand protecting native plants, and it was a very important article. Um, I just like the perspective of the article that you chose. That that was an article I would have definitely mm-hmm. have chosen. So um, I never do this, but I'm going to choose to go second. Okay. I'm going to let you go yeah. first this week. I want to see what it's like to go last. Yeah. And uh, – yeah, and plus you I chose guys, like I another had to scroll, 20. scroll, 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 yeah. scroll to yeah. get down to my. Um, <laughs> I as I have five pages of article on here, and I look at I'm like, oh, Tom's got a very small. Yeah, article. and this is uh, most of the article that I, I pulled out of here, but um, this is an article from the Washington Post, and uh, and it's titled uh, "The Unexpected Downside of Raising Bees in Your Backyard" by Allison Chu. Okay, and um, just an. A, thing i was I, I think about sometimes when i'm pulling these articles i'm like i wonder if these people listen to the podcast i don't know some people i'm i'm waiting to get like one of those where like oh you chose my article thank you yeah kind of thing um i'm really excited to hear about this one because yeah. this is something we just kind of had a off-the-cuff conversation about this the other day yeah. Yeah. in the office yeah and um oh i'll save i'll save some of my thoughts for after i read all but, right go ahead but um and this was published on, I think it was May 19th. So it's fairly recent. So if you think backyard and rooftop beehives are helping save the bees, think again, experts say. A growing body of research suggests that the, suggests the explosion of urban beekeeping involving honeybees in many cities and towns may be hurting critical local wild bee populations. A recent peer-reviewed study conducted in Montreal found that places with the largest increases in domesticated honeybees also have the fewest wild bee species with small bees, which are only able to fly shorter distances to find food, appearing to be especially at risk. The honeybee has been promoted as the symbol of helping the environment and biodiversity, and really it's not, uh, says Gail McKinnis, a former postdoctoral researcher at Concordia University in Montreal and the study's uh, lead author. You would never start keeping chickens to help save wild bird species. That's just a great analogy to me. Yeah. It's like when you really think about it, because this is a, a thing that, a lot of people um, confuse. It's like I I was in a, a conference yesterday that I'm going to talk about later, and um, a lot of people were talking about bees, and then I was uh, I don't want I don't know how much I want to get into now. Basically, there we were talking about bees, and then I was saying, oh well, it, with you have this pollinator garden, it'll attract a whole bunch of insects, and then and, and pollinators, but you'll have birds that'll eat some of them. Yes. And um, they're like, oh, but, but don't we like the bees? Don't we want this? And I'm like, oh, no, we, we like the ecosystem. We do like the bees. Yeah, but, we do. And then they're like, oh, yeah, well, maybe we could put a beehive there. And I'm like, I, no, I don't think that's <laughs> – you're, you're thinking the wrong ways now. Yeah. But um, all right, anyway, back to what the article says. Uh, there are, however, benefits to urban beekeeping as long as it's done in moderation and hives are managed responsibly, experts say. Here's what you need to know about keeping bees and what you can do if you want to help pollinators. Although honeybees are among the most common insects in the world, they aren't native to many of the places where they are found, says Sheila Cola, an associate professor at conservation uh, scientist um, at York University who studies pollinators. The Western and European honeybee, the species commonly found in the United States, is native to Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Honeybees are very successful invaders, Cola says. Not only can these bees fly long distances, but they are also able to effectively communicate with one another through a body-jiggling dance language, 
often or about where nectar is, introducing honeybee hives to an area can be a problem for local wild bees, which often end up competing for the same food sources. A single honeybee colony colony can be home to tens of thousands of bees. For people who say they would uh, want to save the bees and they have a honeybee hive, uh, it's kind of like throwing an Asian carp in the Great Lakes and saying you want to save the native fish, Cullis says. But obviously they're just taking the same resources that the native fish uh, have. Bees teach their babies how to dance. Uh, hives that aren't responsibly managed could also be a source of parasites or disease. Oh, <laughs> that was a like little link that was left in there. Um, the bees teach babies how to dance. I was I don't like, know where's that where going with that? <laughs> yeah, I meant to pull that out. Um, hives that aren't responsibly managed could also be a source of parasites or diseases that quickly spread to, to wild bees, Cola says. Uh, how to save the bees. First, it's important to know that honeybees aren't really in need of saving, says McInnes, now a research scientist at Canada's National Bee Diagnostic Center in Beaver Lodge, Alberta. Though honeybees have their own stressors, they are not actually in decline on a global scale. Wild pollinators, on the other hand, are declining on a global scale and do need help. Jan Day, president of the D.C. Beekeepers Alliance, a nonprofit association, says her group frequently gets asked the same questions. What can I do to save the bees? We sure them managed honeybee is just doing fine, or is doing just fine. Day says she instead urges people to focus on planting native plants to encourage others to do, uh, do so as well. Experts recommend planting a variety of native flowering species that bloom at different times during the year whenever possible. Consider choosing some flowers that bloom early or late in the season, which is typically when food resources are scarce for bees, McKenna says. Mowing less and cultivating pollinator-friendly lawns and gardens could also be helpful, experts say. Uh, native wild bees do so much work, and they are so underappreciated, Cola says, especially with climate change. If we want to have resilient ecosystems, resilient cities, we need to have as many species of bees as possible in our cities. And basically, this is something we've talked about a lot. It's not necessarily that honeybees are a bad thing. Um, they just kind of like monarch butterflies have become a symbol of of conservation and, and yeah. planting native plants and oh, we need to do it for, for the monarch butterfly. And we kind of put the monarch up on a pedestal, even though the practice, what's good for the monarch is good for a whole slew of other pollinators, including moths and ants and birds and all kinds of stuff that are going to then eat those or, or feed off byproducts or the, the pollinators themselves. It's helping the whole ecosystem. We kind of put this on a pedestal and then protect them to a certain extent. And that's happened with honeybees too. It's like... Oh, even my son, he's not even three, but he collates bumblebees with honey. Like, it's those things go hand in hand. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I guess I got to break that association at some point. And, but teach him how important, even though these bumblebees and a lot of our native bees aren't producing something for us to consume, that they're also important, probably more important than the, the honeybees are um, for our ecosystem function. You know, it's just amazing. I think. You know, I think back 30 to 40 years ago mm-hmm. and why this is such a big issue now. And I, I think, you know, I, I think there are so many factors. I look at my first job at the nursery industry and th- there were there were cultivars back then, but it wasn't the same. Like I remember mm-hmm. my first nursery job. We grew and sold uh, coral berry. We sold Cornus alternifolia. Uh, we sold a lot of things that are native plants that you can't find, and this was at a commercial yep. nursery. It was integrated. There were there were cultivars, but it was limited, and you sold non-natives. Uh, but there was a better mix 
And I look at that job and I'm like, all right, that nursery doesn't exist there anymore, and that's all houses that got all cultivars, not native plants, <laughs> when yeah. when those nurseries stopped. And it just has elevated over a time that that imbalance has gotten much larger. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's why you're seeing such a huge impact now that where you have to just kind of go back a little bit, native plants. Like they used yep. to be more – you look – when I worked at Princeton Nurseries, you'd go look at the old handwritten inventory reports. There were cultivars. There were non-natives, but it was mostly native plants. Mm-hmm. That shift really to me has happened in the last 25 years. Yeah, and it has a major impact on native bees, and then you have a lot of resources being thrown into honeybees. And and I don't know how if those resources were I'll, – I'll, I'll rephrase that. I don't know if those efforts, um, whether it be – people picking up and saying, hey, I'm helping save the bees because I'm going to get a beehive. If they didn't have that tangible thing, like the actual beehive one and then two, the honey that they're getting from it, would they still care about saving the bees as much? I don't know. For some people, I think they would. But for others, I don't think think they'd be as passionate about it. Um, And that's not like, again, this is a knock on, on honeybees and beekeepers i think that's a, a really essential thing in some yeah. things but it's kind of like that that chicken uh, i'm not going to go get backyard chickens to help save bird populations um in fact i think there's they're finding that that can have negative impacts on bird populations when they're unmanaged because of the the bird flu stuff that's going on now like I'd- and same thing with honeybees you have honeybee populations and they're transmitting parasites and diseases to native bees in addition to taking a lot of their forage. Um, uh, some research I actually just saw recently from the Xerxes Society was talking about how, um, what was it? I, I forget how many, how many, or one hive of honeybees could take away so many, so much uh, pollen and nectar, but it equated to like, if you had 40 honeybee hives that what they were consuming was the equivalent of like 4 million native bees. Yeah. And well, I 40, 40 honeybee hives is really not that many. We're talking about on, on, uh, Oh, I just met a, a guide who was a beekeeper, one of many beekeepers in our area. And he has like 200 <laughs> and that's wow. just one guy. Um, so now you have what five, well, I'm not even thinking about the people, all the backyard beekeepers you have, Another guy who's probably he's definitely close to five hundred hives. I would yeah. think you have a, another guy who's in like the two hundred to three hundred range. So now you have think about how many millions and millions, tens of millions of bees, native bees, and other pollinators are being out foraged. Exist because of how many just well, honeybees we have around. I guess, and then no it's bad to... for the honeybees too. Because like the honeybees are competing with each other, yeah. and then they're not bringing as much home because there's only so many resources, and then that's why you have some of that colony collapses. Just you have stress on the the hives from and pest issues, disease issues, lack of resources, nutrition. Like I know there's no way of knowing this, but I would love to know the difference difference in the amount of managed hives between today and 25 years ago. Yeah, there has to be huge. Now yeah. where I grew up, it was suburban. I don't know anyone that had. That had mm-hmm. managed bees. You know, it's a little yeah. bit different. When you were a kid, do you, did you know anyone in the area that had managed bees? Uh, I had one guy. One, and yeah. he was really just starting out. Yeah. But um, 
So and I'm sure there was think more. of that difference, yeah. But uh, I'm sure there's ones we definitely don't know about. Yeah. But I'm just thinking in this area, how many more honeybees are there now mm-hmm. with managed hives than there were yeah. back then? Yeah. And that's, again, like I I don't know if anyone across the street from me, like out of sight, has managed hives. I don't think they do. Yeah. We don't have any on our nursery now. We used to. Yeah. But the the honeybees can travel like two plus miles. I see them I was, at our parks. Yeah, I was at um uh, just in my little herb garden outside my my house, and there's a honeybee, or a couple honeybees actually, on the thyme that's flowering outside of my house. I'm like, where did you come from? Like, I cl- it's not within a couple hundred yards. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, it was it was probably the closest hives I know of were at least half a mile away. Yeah. Which is well within their, yeah, their flight distance. Trying, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just like you think about how far they can move or how far they can go and how many they are. And what the Xerxes Society recommends is uh, when it comes to backyard beekeeping is uh, keep it manageable. Don't have way too many hives and try not to do it during near wild areas. Yeah. Um, like have it so that they're feeding on like a, whether it's a, a garden crop or – uh, some kind of agricultural crop not impacting wild areas which the native bees need yeah. to survive now i i i will say i am hypocritical you know uh, like part of me mm. says you can't go anywhere nowadays without seeing local honey mm-hmm. in a store there's local honey everywhere yeah it's, it's a business but as soon as I don't feel well or my allergies are acting up, the first thing I do is take a spoonful mm-hmm. of honey. Whether that yeah. helps me or not, psychologically it helps me. Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. I am I, I'm not saying I, I don't use it. Yeah. One of the, the and this is actually another question we have coming up with the, the allergy thing. One of the things that and I don't remember who told this to me originally, um but they were saying, Oh yeah, that that rumor of or the I just wanna say I don't want to Say it's a rumor. It's I don't want to say it's a myth either. There, it may be plausible, but the concept that okay, you, if you're consuming local honey, it'll help with your allergies. Kind of falls flat when you think, oh, the allergies I have are caused by wind pollinated things. Yeah, and the pollen that or the nectar that and pollen that the honey is the bees are making honey you're getting is from. Insect pollinated things. Sometimes it's wind. Yeah. But um, it's the kind of like everyone blames goldenrod for a lot of their allergies yeah. when it's the ragweed. They yeah. just see the goldenrod blooming and say, and that's what's that. hurting yeah. me. And it's the ragweed, which is the wind pollinated thing at the same time, where you don't see the flower. Yeah. So it's like, hey, how much of I, – when I, when I heard that, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that really doesn't make much sense. No, it, oh, I'm going <laughs> to eat this honey from insect pollinated stuff to prevent wind pollinated allergies. Um, or wind pollinated pollen allergies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the one thing I did actually really like at the end of this, um, is that they really put in, uh, they said mowing less, not embracing no mow may. And then, uh, and then cultivating pollinator friendly lawns and gardens could also be helpful. That I think is a a really big thing to me is like just letting it's the same concept in my mind or same yeah, same concept of no mome is like, oh, if I just don't do anything, I'm helping. And it's like, eh, it's 
if you're maybe if you have, yeah, maybe if you have <laughs> butter, helping, buttercups on your yard yeah, or you white buttercup clover, and you know, clover and, and dandelions and all this stuff. To Eurasia, like, yeah. Yeah, is that really doing that much? Or is it actually maybe even causing more of an issue because now you're spreading seed yeah. all over the place? Yeah. Um, no, I, but I've seen other places where, well, Kyle Lieberger does it all the time, and he shows his nomome, and he's like blue-eyed grass and all this, yeah. and violets and all this really good stuff, which... Uh, I did see some violets in my lawn, but not many. We mowed one of- time in May, and what came up I, – I just want to make sure I, I have the name right because it's not native. Um, I thought it was um, Spring Beauties at first, mm-hmm. but it was Star of Bethlehem. Yeah, Star of Bethlehem, which is another invasive plant. Yeah. So my um, when we we didn't mow, that yep. was the first thing that came up. You know, And that's yep. something that only yep. blooms during the day. Like it kind of closes at yeah, night. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's another one, or another thing I do. There's a couple spots I leave just to kind of see what yeah. happens, um, and I don't mow. I still haven't mowed them uh, since this at all this year, and it's like uh, Star of Bethlehem comes up, a bunch of non-native fescues. Um, what's the other one? Uh, the purple dead nettle. Oh and yeah, the, uh, yeah. The, the other one that looks it's like, like an ajuga. Yeah, a, that I aren't think it's an ajuga. that aren't native. Um, I. Don't I can't identify many native species or any native species when I let that happen. Nah, but there's me, places that, that it does. So cool. Make it if you if you want to help the pollinators and you want to help the ecosystem and instead of Nomo May, put in a ten by ten little pollinator plot. Even You're a five by five. Way more five by five. five, five. five You're by doing five. way more benefit than just not mowing your lawn. I agree. Um and I it's agree. probably well, I guess no You're mowing your lawn this. isn't Less work, but no, but you're saving the soil. You're not yeah. spilling oil. You're not spilling yep. gas. You're not yep. doing exhaust. You yeah. know, there's there's definitely benefits. Yeah. Um, my article this week I stole from you. It was given to us by a listener that said one of us could use it, and I used it. <laughs> this was uh, oh, so I should blame Jen- the listener yeah. for how long yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer Cabrera, for for sharing this one with with Tom and I. She was curious to see which one of us would use it because she felt it. It was definitely an article that she figures she knows which one would choose, so we'll have to see if we were right. But uh, my article, yeah, I, I I saw that in the email, and yeah. I'm like, I wonder, I wonder which one she's thinking. Yeah, of. I wonder too. So. It's one of those things. It's like, well, I, I'm not the one who chose it, so <laughs> I'm thinking she was thinking of you. Uh, well, we'll find out. So the name of the article is "The Florida Town That Challenged Hurricane Ian and Won." This is by Stephanie Haynes, and it is published on the Christian Science Monitor. Um, it is a little bit longer. I'll try not to read the whole thing. I'll, I'll try to script through. But um, as Hurricane Ian moved toward Florida's west coast in late September, uh, Amy Wicks drove around this rapidly growing community trying to figure out what she hadn't thought of yet. She checked for any debris that might be blocking water runoff paths. She took note of the restored wetlands. She hoped that no alligators had taken up residence in drain pipes. Eventually, she returned to her own home, hunkered down with her husband and three children, listened as freight train winds moved over Babcock Ranch, a four-year-old planned community some 20 miles inland from Fort Myers. At that point, she says she could only hope that the unique stormwater system she had designed and monitored over the past decade would be up to the task. I had a theory it would work, says the civil engineer, but it wasn't like there was any case study. The storm sat overhead for nearly 10 hours, dumping more than 10 foot of rain. More than a foot of rain, not 10 feet of rain. Could you imagine that? Yeah, that would be uh, that would be something. Dumping more than a foot of rain on this swath of old Florida cattle ranches and newly built cul-de-sacs. By the time it subsided, 
It was clear something extraordinary had taken place in Babcock Ranch, created as a sort of laboratory for green development in Florida and intentionally designed to survive extreme weather. The town proved remarkably resilient in the face of Category 4 hurricane. Unlike surrounding areas, it did not flood in large part because of Miss Wick's years of planning and her unique stormwater management design that mimic natural systems rather than fighting them. It did not lose power thanks to not only its 700,000 panel solar grid and battery backup system, but also the power line hardening developers undertook with their utility provider, Florida Power and Light. Because Babcock Ranch owns and operates its own water plant, which also survived the storm, it was the only town in Charlotte County that did not go under boil water alert. But this resilience was not just important for Babcock Ranch itself. Across the state, there's a small but growing effort to build more resilient communities in Florida, an effort to shift a years-long pattern of rapid development that many here say uh, exasperates water shortages and other environmental risks. Now academics, policymakers, advocates, and developers are pointing to how Babcock Ranch fared during the hurricane as proof that in one of the country's fastest-growing states – there are practical reasons to build with greater attention to the environment, climate uh, climate change, and water management, and that doing so may well prove economically beneficial in the long run. I was su- super happy to see that they came through Hurricane Ian so well, says Jenison Kipp, a resource economist with the University of Florida and the state coordinator for Sustainable Floridians, a program that worked to put sustainability research into practice across the state. So much as having proof of concept and trying to sell it to developers. Uh, For years, building in Florida has followed a pattern with a constant flow of new home buyers. An average of nearly 1,000 people move to Florida each day according to oft-repeated state statistics. Developers have tried to acquire as much land as possible and as quickly as possible. That often means buying up faded ranches or long-ignored swaths of swamps and forests, green-covered lands that must be flattened and cleared to make way for housing developments. Indeed, to meet builders' codes and require homes to be graded above street level, developers will typically bulldoze the landscape, dig storm ponds, and then use the fill from the holes to prep building sites. Um, Let's see. Traditionally, developers would replant the denuded landscape with types of species that outsiders tend to think about when they imagine Florida. Uh, Green St. Augustine grass, colorful azaleas draping, uh, bougainvillea. Uh, the problem, Mr. Salen says, is that these plants aren't native to the state, so they require a lot more inputs to stay healthy, such as water, fertilizer, and pesticides. They also struggle to thrive in soil devoid of organic material and nutrients. Developers have made uh, developers have to mass grade a site to build efficiently and econ- economically. Wow, I can't talk today. He says the most efficient thing to do is to raise it, bring it in, fill. This creates soil that's difficult to work with. Meanwhile, because the natural topography of the land has been erased and the natural water collection system of the wetlands and marshes have been eliminated, the man-made drainage systems become the only way to capture water. This can be a problem in some storms, particularly those with unusually heavy rains thanks to climate change. Uh, The landscapes are all on life support. Nowhere is this more important than the center of the state. The counties around Orlando and some are, are some of the fastest growing in the country according to the U.S. Census, attracting not only the normal collection of sun seekers from the north but also what are known inside Florida as climate refugees, people from the southern coastal cities who have decided to leave rising sea levels and hurricane rest and move north inland. 
This has meant even more rapid development as well as extreme water shortages. According to the state's Central Water Authority, the region will face a 235 million gallon a day shortfall by 2035 unless demand and usage patterns change. This is one reason why when 27,000 acres of ranch land came up for development just south of Orlando, part of a 300,000-acre swath owned by Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, executives at the development company Tavistock decided to approach the project differently. At the end of the day, Florida is as, is at a pivotal point when it comes to development in the state. Uh, let's see. Um, Tavistock – and the lead uh, – it's a community that will eventually have 36,000 homes. You have to look at development differently. The planned Sunbridge, which is about two-thirds the size of Washington, D.C., Mr. Beattie and others at Tavistock coordinated with representatives from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, the Sustainable Floridians, and other groups. They came up with a plan to use native landscaping, even as chewing uh, the popular St. Augustine grass for the, for the more drought and heat-resilient Although occasionally browner, Bahia grass. Uh, Bahia. Bahia. Okay, yeah. thank you. I don't know I how don't know. I where I've I just know I've, I'm around so many turf people that I don't know that grass. Bahia yeah, grass. Um, they are saving and re- relocating some of the old live oak trees on the property. All the new homes will be wired for solar panels and electricity or electric vehicle plug-ins, and one model house version boasts tes- uh, Tesla solar shingles and battery backup system. Meanwhile, to help move away from fertilizer, scientists have built a living laboratory along a walking path at the development's community center called Base Camp, where they are testing the viability of different species of native plants as well as different sorts of compost amendments to the soil and the impact of pollinator species. Mr. Beattie is also working to figure out how to arrange for large-scale composting and food waste recycling on the community. All of this marks a substantial change from what usually happens in Florida developments. Uh, she acknowledges that perhaps the best thing for the environment and for the resilience of the land would be to never build on those 27,000 acres, to never cull the trees or disturb the topsoil. But she and others involved in sustainable building initiatives here say uh, that for better or worse, development in Florida is going to happen. The new willingness of developers to balance their work with ecological efforts is a huge win, um, and she hopes it will be a snowball effort to prove popular with new residents. It's only been in the last year that we've been successful in convincing large-scale developers to adopt different practices. We think that there's a significant chunk of new home buyers that would pay more for a home and community that is walking, uh, walking the talk and offering more connection to nature. With yards to look different and bring more pollinators, it's quieter and you don't have to mow it. Um, I'm just going to kind of stop there. There's still another page, but I, I – it's something that I've heard chatter of here, like communities that collect their own rainwater and things like that. But you never really see it take place. And for an area that was – I mean that Fort Myer area was ravaged. My son lives mm-hmm. a half an hour inland from there, and fortunately he was in a place where he said it was – they didn't really receive damage, but it was all drainage ditches to capture and move mm-hmm. out as quickly as possible. And to kind of treat it like a like a riparian zone or a flood zone and – and collect power uh, efficiently uh, to worry about pollinators, to worry about soil, all these things. I, I mean, that's a community I would live in. I oh, yeah. It's, and and yeah. it proved successful in an area that could be flush with, with hurricanes mm-hmm. on any given season. So yeah. now, granted, they're not taking it, they're not on the coast, they're not taking the brunt of it, 
an hour inland. Like my, like I said, my son was a half an hour inland. I think they only had a damaged storm door. They had, mm-hmm. they were without power for maybe like three hours. Yeah, and that's an area of the country that, like, in addition, to just the storms just gets a lot of precipitation. Yes. So there you have a lot of water in uh, in what more than likely used to be wetlands, and they need to know what to do with it. And sometimes it's a, a mixed answer. You need to have some of the, the gray infrastructure like we talk about, but then have green solutions as well. And if you keep removing native plant material and plant material, I would imagine that will affect the rainfall as well. So if you just keep building and building and doing nothing about it, Maybe they're already going to be at a at a loss for for water mm-hmm. <laughs> in the next twelve years, fifteen years. It, it's only going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. It's you know their own water treatment plant, just a way to make it sustainable for living in a way that we all talk about. But like, could you see Benjamin Vote living there um, instead of Nebraska? Well, in a community like that. In a community like like that, yes. I think he would appreciate living in a community. Although he may appreciate trying to convert people (laughs) not living in a community like that to live in a community like that. That all communities should be like that. I don't think Benjamin Vogt's going to move to Florida for other reasons. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. A community like that, yeah, I could see him really appreciating that kind of sentiment. And to me, it's shocking that it's happening in Florida. Um, But I think this is something that needs – Given the template that it works, and I think the people that want that will pay more for it. I agree. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. uh, look at what people are willing to spend for native plants. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Just to be able to have access to them or find them. Mm-hmm. I think that. Uh, it. I don't know. It. It. It made me smile reading this article that mm-hmm. that this is something that's happening, and people are receptive to it, and it should happen more often. Mm-hmm. It's like the. It's like the bizarro home HOA world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's the exact it's, – it's almost the exact opposite, and I hope this becomes the new trend. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, but I, I appreciate – if you get a chance, we're going to post these links on Monday, and you'll have the opportunity to vote. And uh, the articles are both a little bit longer, so make sure you dive in and read both of them. There should be no paywall, paywalls mm-hmm. this time. So uh, you get to vote. And make sure you do because. And of course, the choice is yours. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. All right. What do we have? We have. We have uh, listener shout-outs. Or questions. Which one do you want to do questions. first? You want to do listener shout-outs? Yeah, let's do listener shout-outs. All right. Listener, listener, shout-out, 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 shout-out. All right. Um, I'll, go, I'll go first. But that seemed like it ended abruptly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had posted on the Facebook group probably two weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago. Like how did you first hear it? Here of the podcast because mm-hmm. we were getting in it. We've we've had two thousand new members in the last month mm-hmm. for the Facebook group. We were just curious how people were finding us. And uh, I first of all, I was kind of shocked how many people found us just through podcast search. Yeah, um, that yeah. kind of really shocked me. Um, but one uh, comment from Katie Weller in our Facebook group, the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group, said she found us 
uh, through the episode with Joan Brandwine, which was Meet Native Plants in Small Spaces. And that was our number one listened to episode of all time until just this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was over a year uh, that yeah. that was a number one episode. And it was it, – it, it really – Joan was very – accommodating and knowledgeable and helpful and answered a lot of the questions that a lot of our listeners were asking just how do I start? How do Mm -hmm. I do this? How do I do it? I only have this much property. How can I make a difference? But Katie was saying that she actually has a downloaded copy of that that she listens to whenever she wants. Oh, um, no way. Whenever she wants a little inspiration and it got her to start digging and start planting. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did mention that we're the only podcast of any type or any format that she listens to every episode and manages to learn something awesome. new every well, that episode. That is very flattering. So now I feel pressure like, oh, did we did we throw anything out there that that someone would would learn from this year? Did we give any information? So far, did we? Did yeah. we? Yeah, I'm sure somewhere Something. there's a nugget <laughs> buried somewhere in these last uh, 50 episodes. I hope so. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, that was a very inspirational comment for me mm-hmm. as we do this podcast. Like every now and then, you need a little inspiration to keep going and keep it fresh and keep it good. And it just makes me feel good about why we do it and that we keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, then I had two. I'll start with the the one. Um, there was uh, Dave Bush Bishop in the Facebook group uh, posted a link, just some of the stuff he was going talking about, some of the stuff that he'd heard us talk about. Uh, but then he he referenced another podcast called Wild Plant Culture, yeah, um, which is Jared. our friend Jared Rosenbaum from Wild Rich Plants, and um, which is a native plant nursery in New Jersey, and uh, and all about like local fungi and like using that in like a michael risel yeah. association so that was something i still have to check out i'm like uh like our your your <laughs> shout out uh there's very few podcasts i listen to every single episode i listen to a ton of podcasts yeah. and so many i only get like a chance to listen to here and there yeah but um so yeah that's one i wanted to check out for sure because that's something awesome. that i've been really interested in and then um then the second one we, i usually reserve this for five star reviews but we use this as a learning opportunity and hope yes. that maybe you'll change it to a five star review. Yes. This is uh, from Gary Patches, and uh, but one of his questions in his review was where to volunteer uh, and, and in I, New Jersey. Yeah, and I think Gary said he just started. He just found us recently and has only listened to the last few mm-hmm. recent episodes. Actually, one of Tom's uh, visions for the podcast was to connect people with. Yeah, with opportunities to volunteer, and we really started it a little more local, even though. A lot of the nonprofits that we had on or organizations have a national presence. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't make it all the way back 158 episodes to listen to them all, yeah. um, you can go into the show notes. Um, there are at least mm-hmm. 30 organizations in New Jersey that that have volunteered. New Jersey Invasive yeah. Strike Team Council, uh, Sourland Conservancy, the Xerces mm-hmm. Society, New Jersey Audubon. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think of well, some was, of the other ones. The first thing I would do is look up, and you might have already Native done Plant this. Society. New Jersey, yeah, Native Plant Society in New Jersey. Find your local chapter. That's the best way to get yeah. have like a lot of involvement. Um, and then from there, you can spin off to the stuff that you're interested in. So it's like American Literal Society yeah. is, is one if you're on the coastal area or you enjoy going to those uh, those areas. Um, we had the like, Nature Conservancy. Yeah, on Nature it. Conservancy. If you're like me, we have our uh, and you, you like to hunt and fish. There's 
New Jersey's backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, and they don't do a, a ton of stuff, but they're interested in keeping New Jersey's public lands pristine and, and, and open for people. Um, my brother, he likes, he does a lot of spearfishing and his like local spearfishing club does a ton of beach cleanups and he's trying to convince him, Hey, let's do like a, a small, um, like marsh restoration. Yeah. Like just like find someone who has a, a little, a pier on the bay and, or, or dock on the bay and just say, Hey, do you mind if we plant some plants here? And then, cause they can use it and say, Hey, look, we're helping create fish habitat yeah. by doing this. And, um, so there's what. Uh, Trout Unlimited. Trout Unlimited is another one. kind of stuff. Um, the National Wild Turkey Federation. I know. Um, I know we had, um, I think it was Burlington County Parks. Like our county's park system had a, a, a portal where you could put in to volunteer, request a volunteer mm-hmm. or pick yep. a volunteer yep. spot. Um, so many, and, and based on your likes, you can go in any direction, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of nice. Something local, something a little more uh national base yeah. but there's so many great organizations locally you you really can pick and choose however you want native yeah. plant society has uh like volunteer stuff that oh, they yeah. yep. um that they organize so mm-hmm. uh, you yep. you will have plenty to choose from you, yeah. you might get overwhelmed when that's you start what i was gonna say <laughs> is the, the thing is once you like put yourself out there that you're willing to help with stuff uh you get asked a lot <laughs> so yeah it's like so find the ones you're, you're really passionate and and stick with them for a little while and then and start to branch out from there. It's I agree. my other recommendation. You don't want to get into too much too quick because then it's like you're just spread too thin and you might be doing like sacrificing um to show up to some stuff when and you're showing where you might be more passionate and you end up it becomes a burden not something that's fun. Whenever we have a guest, one of the last things we always ask is how can our listeners get involved? And uh, like I said, if you go in the show notes, whenever we have a guest, we have links to all their social media and websites. So if if you're looking to to get involved, just do a quick search through all the the show notes uh, for some of these organizations that are based in New Jersey, and uh, you'll have plenty to choose from, and they'll be happy that you found them. So, um, you have any more listener shoutouts? Is that no? That was it. All right, yeah. uh, let's get into uh, questions then. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. It's a simple question. Um, no, I didn't hear you. What was your question? All right. The first one may be a familiar voice to you. Let's see if anyone – well, he's going to say who he is, but see if anyone can recognize it. Well, good morning, Fran and Tom. This is Santino from New Jersey, uh, long-time lurker, first-time caller. Uh, I've got some questions and a comment to first quote uh, – Famous comedian Dimitri Martin, is this podcast as awesome as I think it is? That's my question. The comment I would have to say is yes. Uh, but my real question is, uh, this past week, my allergies have been through the roof. I'm sure many other listeners are also feeling it. Um, I was wondering if you guys would mind diving into a discussion on the different plants that are around our areas that could be causing our allergies throughout the season. Uh, the big one that I'm thinking of at the moment is walnut, but wondering what your thoughts are if you could provide some insight. Thanks so much. Looking forward to the next episode. Take care. Uh, it, for many of you, I don't know if you've listened to the episode, but uh, back for Meet uh, Bowman's Hill Wildflower Preserve, which is in Bucks County, PA. Santino was a former uh, guest of ours, and um, that's another place that's 
real close to New Jersey if you're looking mm-hmm. to volunteer that has volunteer opportunities. At the time the Santino left that message, real the you know a lot of right now I think it's tree or tree species mm-hmm. that are creating yep. a lot of the pollen. And at the time that he left this message, oaks were the biggest. Uh, like maples had just kind of finished. Oaks were really kicking in, and I kind of like backing up to a wooded area. I can tell just by what's on my deck. Uh, you know, as far as mm-hmm. pollen wise goes, you know, it went through all the maples and it went through all the oaks. Uh, he mentioned uh, where he's located at. I think walnut and beech are mm-hmm. are big, uh, known to to cause allergies uh, from their pollen. Um, and then also birch and cottonwood are are big, mm. big uh, culprits. The one thing I couldn't find anything on that I was very interested uh, over the last couple of weeks, my son and I have been looking for a car for him in southern New Jersey. And every you go to any car lot, it's covered with with pine pollen. Like we're just yeah. outside yeah. the pine barrens. Like the pine pollen. I know your brother just recently did a video with oh, the yeah. pollen yeah. does, but I I can't really find anything saying. If pine pollen is allergy causing, but I will say that during that period, my allergies were at their worst. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think I'm on the uh, the other side of it now, where they're finally kicking in. My allergies are hit or miss depending on the year, uh, but this year were were some of the worst. Yeah, I'm I'm not a big. Uh, I, I don't get like that spring allergies for the longest time. I didn't think I got any. And, um, and I would feel really, really terrible. And, um, and I would just, uh, I would, I, excuse me, I would feel really, really terrible for you yeah. and Teresa. Yeah. I didn't personally feel <laughs> really terrible because I would just come oh. in and like puffy eyes and runny oh. noses and like just you could tell they didn't feel good. Oh, and then Chris- I would like a couple times I'm like, yeah, I got a little headache today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christiane, <laughs> who, going on? For, for our listeners that listen to A Native Plant Every Day with Tom and Frank, Christiane, our producer uh, that was on season two with us this year, her allergies were through the roof this year. Um, hers kind of kicked in a week before mine. And it kind of follows, like I said, the, the biggest culprits at this time of the year are mainly trees. And it col- kind of follows suit. It was maples and oaks, walnut and beech. Uh, I think birch and cottonwood were earlier. They were on the mm-hmm. – it was like birch, cottonwood, maple oaks, walnut beach. And then pine pollen was out of control this year. Um, but again, I couldn't really find anything associating allergies with pine pollen. So I kind of feel like even in my voice right now, like allergies are, are affecting how I'm talking. Mm-hmm. But um, Yeah, it's – um realistically – like I said, I don't I don't have it too too bad. I don't have the really bad allergies. Um so whenever I think of uh of of allergies and, and pollen in the spring, it's more So uh, <laughs> it's more this kind of vibe that I'm getting. <laughs> and I don't wanna <laughs> have us have a copyright infringement. <laughs> And I have no long, no clue how long the intro is to this song. <laughs> but it's it's the season of love. It, it is and, the uh, season of love. This is a very long. I, I don't it know. It is I know a very song. long, very long intro. Brent, do you know this song? I I do. I'm just waiting for it to come on. It's going. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
It's spring, baby. <laughs> it's spring, baby. It's the season of love. Uh, uh, hopefully, I'm, that was short uh, enough. Uh, that the the it, Barry White. Yes. Alive? No. Dead? Dude, no how dead. long ago did he die? Uh, a few years. Not like a long time yeah. ago. Well, I hope the trust of Barry White doesn't come after us yeah, for I hope a copyright not. infringement. But, but uh, I, I'm, I'm going to throw this back at Santino. So if I were to collect Pokemon and I have allergies, which Pokemon should I not collect to uh, so that they don't ignite my, my allergies? I'm assuming maybe Bulbasaur. Yeah. Uh, possibly. I don't know who else. I'm going to throw it back at him. Mm-hmm. Throw it in the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Pokemon not to collect if you have allergies. Uh, we do have another um, another question uh, for us. Hi, Tom and Fran. I'm Linda from Glenside, PA. Thanks so much for what you do. I started gardening in 2020 and have primarily focused on cut flowers. I love making bouquets for friends, neighbors, and for the office. Though I don't remember how I got into Native Flowers, nor the importance of how to avoid planting invasive species. I have taken flower growing and flower farming courses like florets, and they brush off the responsibility and accountability of avoiding invasive species. As such, common, uh, common seed producers in the country sell invasive species without warning, such as Dan's Rocket, Sweet Annie, Crest, and many more. I'm still learning and have found it's hard to learn what flowers are invasive because of the invasiveness of flowers is not readily Googleable. What is the best resource for budding flower farmers or cut flower gardeners to use if they want to be ecologically responsible by avoiding invasive species? And while I have your ear, would love to have a guest on the pod who utilizes native flowers in their flower farm. Thank you. That is a wonderful call. Thank you for calling in. Um, I agree. You can go into any garden center and buy an invasive plant. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's some states that have taken the legislature that we we talked about, like PA and Delaware, New Jersey. Uh, it's today. at vote. Yeah. Well, today, today yeah, today they're. Is it in the Senate? In the assembly? Oh, okay. And it might be in the Senate too. So, and that was going to be. I love giving calls to action. Um, we might be a day too late. It would yeah. happen very, very quickly. It went from just between our last buzz and now. It went from hey, it's going to go to the agricultural senate hearing or, or agricultural committee meeting in the assembly to oh, they're going to put it on the floor on Thursday. Yeah. And um, so uh, I don't know what time it may even be done already uh, this Thursday morning. But um, as we're approaching noon now. Uh, so Friday, hopefully we're hearing really good news. I don't expect to hear bad news. And then I think it goes to the Senate once that's done. But, um, yeah, we've been so busy. I've been a little yeah. out of the loop um, on the progress. Um, no, I, but, it, but it is progressing. But it's, really, it's progress, really well. and that will help. But, Linda, I agree. Like part of the problem is that certain plants are invasive in certain parts of the country. And not other parts like, like I know uh, Budlia or Scotch Broom, uh, Cytisus is native – or I mean uh, not native – is invasive in Washington State mm-hmm. and Oregon State, and it's not considered as invasive here. So that's that's always up for debate and argument, and one thing that does help is – and I will post this link in the show notes – is that the USDA has a website uh, – with wildflowers and invasives, and it actually gives literature and PDFs that you can print out uh, to educate or to post for certain plants. It's almost like wanted posters mm-hmm. for certain invasives, 
and that's a great start. I, my other recommendation really is depending on the state you're in, check with your your native plant society of that state and or wild ones, and they'll be able to help uh, educate as far as what plants are invasive uh, to your region. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's that's a great place to start. This. You know, it, I I wasn't that aware with this USDA site until recently, and was kind of really impressed with it. I would like them to market it and promote a little bit more, so people can find it a little easier. Are you looking at the 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 link now? Uh, no, I'm no? not. Okay. I'm, um, I don't. I can't find one on Pennsylvania, New Jersey. We have our invasive species track yeah. team. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming there's probably something like that somewhere in Pennsylvania. And like our New Jersey one would still be, you're in Glenside PI, so it would still be a valuable resource where they have a lot of plants that you should avoid. It's a good thing to reference, even though you're not in the state, you're not that far away. Um, The other thing I do all the time, uh, and I guess it will tell you invasivity too, is uh, is just the the, uh, biota of North America or North America yeah. Project maps, so the Bonap maps. Um, I'll what I will do almost any plant uh, that I'm introduced to. I'll Google the botanical name and just follow it with Bonap, and it'll bring up sometimes the map of the whole genus or all the all the species in the genus. Sometimes it'll just be that species, and then I'll find it and say, "Is it blue, meaning it's non-native, or is it green, meaning that it's native in the U.S." Um, and then from there, you can kind of, once you have the key figured out, that was another yeah. thing that happened in the the Facebook group recently is people were going back and forth with Bonap and yeah. incredibly valuable tool until you figure out the key. It, it can be a little tricky. To yes, use. I agree. Um, but uh, it was made in like 2014, 2015. Um, they, I'm sure there's not a lot of resources going into to uh, keep it as fresh as, as everyone would like. But um, really, really valuable there. And there's this more. And iNaturalist is another one. Um, Just, again, I'm introduced to a new plant. Take a picture. It gives me suggestions on what it might be. And then I can say, like, in the description, it'll say where you they've seen it or where the other reports have been. But then also what that traditional um, uh, native range would be from a, a country and continent standpoint, yeah. which at least will give you – Oh, I'm finding this on a hedgerow. Like I happened to me this morning, found uh, something on a hedgerow, took a picture, put it up, hadn't seen the plant before. I deed it as a certain plant and said, "Oh, this is native to northern Africa and yeah. and the Mediterranean." So, not from here. Yeah. Um. And then from there, when I was Google it more, found oh, it has invasive tendencies. Yeah. So, awesome. Yeah. No, but that was a great question, and it's a, a great. Uh, you know the other thing if you're in I know that New Jersey has an uh invasive strike team uh which is based out of uh Friends of Hopewell Valley open space I believe uh didn't didn't Mike Van Cleef say that that was part of a national network I don't remember I but. I I don't think it's the only one so you can even see if your state has an invasive species strike team uh that can provide more information as well so there's a hopefully that's a, a Enough resources to get you started and and start pointing you in the right directions, and you can share those to people that that you're you're concerned with having the same issues. So, um, fantastic questions! Thank you for everyone that calls in. Remember that we have the question and comment line, and if you call, we will uh, do our best to play it on a future episode of the Buzz. No grow read a book. 
uh, no Tom's Petty or no not that I'm one to complain. Um, all we really have is a take it or leave it. Yeah. And I threw something a little different Which in there. Which is good because, because we're at what? Almost well, an we're hour and a half. Hour 10. Yeah. We're at hour yeah. 10. So this will this will be good timing. So I know a lot of people when they get excited about native plants go full bore. Like, And we always say start small. But some people go big, go big or go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always talk about, you know, if you're not sure what to plant or or you don't know where to find the native plants that you want, you can start by not plant, planting invasives or not mm-hmm. – or removing invasives, like do invasives removal to get started. But, but a lot of people are removing plants that are non-native that are also not considered invasive. And I could see that if you're you're planting all natives, but if you're just removing non-natives for the sake that they're not native, how do you feel about that? Uh, um, I do it, but okay. I don't do it until until I have something to go there. Um, yeah. So you're re- you're replacing. You're I'm not replacing. just removing. I'm not just removing. Yeah. But how do you feel about people saying not a native? I'm taking it out. I think it's fine. Okay. Not. A, I don't have a problem with it. All right. Um, I used to do that, <laughs> but then I realized, well, I better have a plan in place because otherwise I'm just maintaining yeah. something that it would have been better maintained leaving the, the non-native. In. That's, that's been my approach. I don't necessarily have a problem with doing it early. It's just, you don't want to leave it as, um, like say you had a bare we- ground. Say you had a weeping yeah. cherry, mm-hmm. you know, not native, not really invasive. Yeah. It's just there. I'm sure it provides some benefit, possibly. Yeah, yeah possibly. I don't know. I don't I don't know. Are, are you just taking it out just for the fact that it's a non-native, even if you have nothing to replace it? Well, that's an interesting question, Fran, because I think I think weeping cherries look so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> that's and I don't know. Maybe it's just because I grew up with this kind of stuff. I like I'll go around and look at all the the designer. Yeah. Type plants in other people's landscapes, and I'm like that looks ridiculous. It just looks so stupid to me. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not. That's just my personal taste. Uh, my my wife, I know, loves some of this stuff. Like I think Japanese maples, like the little dwarf ones, are the dumbest thing. I, it's and they're super expensive. They're, yeah, they're super expensive. They're all over the place. It's not like they're that rare in a sense. Mm-hmm. You see, like one every five houses. It seems like. And I just think they look absolutely ridiculous. Um, All right, but I'll give you an example. Like yeah. you, you know, so my, yeah, I, I would remove them yeah. in that sense, but it's not because of what it is. It's because of what it is, not because of it's a non-native. So in my old house, I had a oh. full, like a fully mature uh, weeping cherry on the mm-hmm. front yard, yeah, which would get tent caterpillar every year, mm-hmm. which is a native native to North mm-hmm. America, which. Is yeah, food feeding, for birds. Yeah, yeah that's feeding, feeding birds. So it's actually providing to the ecosystem even though mm-hmm. it's not native. Now, if I were to remove that but not have a plan to replace it just to say it's not native, I'm taking it out. Mm-hmm. You for that or against it? I don't, I, you don't care? I, yeah, <laughs> you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I, I Like I said, I – on a case by case basis, depending on what the plan is, I would either do it or I wouldn't. But it's more because of what the plan is, and less. Yeah, yeah. It's hard for me to to say whatever. No, if it, do. if it was if the if the cher- weeping cherry was harboring gypsy moth, which are non native yeah. and cre- contributing to that issue, 
then I could completely see that as yeah. more of a I problem. Need a, I need because I'm getting hung up on the weeping cherry thing. Like I, cherry, I, sh- I just use that as an example. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I'm getting hung up on there, but it's like I'm up if okay, you have. I can't think of a better choice. I'm trying to a weeping cherry, and it's either you leave the weeping cherry or you turn it into uh, to turf grass. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes that's the the conundrum right there. Yeah. Um, I really, yeah, I really don't care personally. I'm <laughs> I'm probably going to take it down just because I don't like it, and I plant a new tree. Okay, but it's um, right. which uh, yeah, yeah, that's a whole. But that's different a different thing. question. Yeah, that's a different question. <laughs> yeah, that's a different yeah. question. Oh, yeah. Or right, I'm just trying to think. All right, say so you have you have non-native azaleas. Mm-hmm. You don't have a plan. They're somewhere on the back of the property, and you're not okay. going to plant there. But you're like, that's yeah. not a native. I'm going to take All it right. out. Yeah, I've, I've left them. You're, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I have some in my yard right now, or All my right. landscape. All right. So. So it's kind of it, – it depends. It's not a clear-cut issue. Yeah. So like, – Like all of these. It, it all depends. Removing non-natives just for the sake of removal because it's mm-hmm. not native. It depends. I'm all for all natives. Don't get me wrong. I'm all yeah. for removing invasives. I'm all for natives. Yeah, I think I think the big thing is I advocate if you are doing that, you should have a plan. Yes, and the plan I could agree. be like, hey, I just I don't agree. want it. I'm going to put grass there. That's okay. I'd prefer you put a native tree, shrub, yeah. other kind of plant there, but it's, I, that's not up to me. You know, invasives, get rid of them. I would love yep. to see it one for one. If you're taking something out, put something in. But mm-hmm. – um, I I don't know. I kind of feel if it's not hurting anything, and it's contributing something, I would rather have that there than nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So it that would be like low on my if I were prioritizing, I would be remove invasives, plant natives, mm-hmm. and then remove possibly at the very end remove. Yep. Like after I've yep. I've created enough enough habitat there. I'm. I was. I was having trouble coming up with a take it or leave it. So I tried to. No, that's a to, good question. Yeah, it's. It really is something different. But that should end us for today. I think that's. Yeah. Oh we, yeah. We 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 did a good amount of time today. Yes, we sure did, and that's going to wrap us up. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to the buzz. Thank you everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pines Nursery. Thank you, R.J. Comer, for our buzz theme music. Uh, streamer by R.J.'s music wherever you consume your music. Uh, you can also check out his Americana playlist on Pandora. Follow us at Twitter, Pine, Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, or at Pinelands Nursery. Also, YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. We talked about the question and comment line earlier. Call us at 215 346 6189. I will repeat 215. 215- Three four six six one eight nine. You can ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And welcome to all the new members of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, I really appreciate all the people that are finding us and contributing to the community. Mm-hmm. It's oh, nice yeah. to have a little bit of, you know, yeah, uh, it sure uh, is some some new blood. Yep. Um, so you can buy our merch, uh, our Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com bunch of t-shirts up there uh there's a link right at the top of that website that'll take you to that store and you can pick out whatever you want or even better yet you could 
uh, sing a little song and enter our contest <laughs> and and hundred dollars hundred dollars that you can pick whatever you want yeah and it's on us yes um but we we don't keep any of the the profits for that it's going to the uh, uh places that we think are doing really really good boots on the ground stuff with native plants so um it's a way that uh, everyone's given back in a sense. Yes. So, and uh, you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet at that website, but you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, really wherever you consume your podcast. Do us a favor when you're there. Leave us a five-star review. Um, yeah, the four-star review better, should change to five. <laughs> it should change. But um, You know, it was a good question, and I wanted really to make was, sure yeah. we answered it. Uh, if you leave a five-star review, I'll give you a shout-out on our Buzz episodes, and uh, and make sure you hit subscribe. That That is something that That's really, huge. really, really helps us. So um, I do have a secret in here. I can't wait to hear I, I see what a, it is. I, I can't wait to I another thing I wanted to bring up in the beginning, and I forgot. Okay. All and right, then I also ahead. have a little little quiz Oh, everyone. all right. Because I feel like I say thank you like 17 times in that last yeah. little bit. Um, how many t- How many times do you think we say thank you in there? And I'm, this is a question for everyone at home. Do you know that? Do you know the answer? Well, I just looked it up. Okay. I just counted. Um, do you feel like we say thank you a lot? We do. In that? Uh, we say thank you for listening. Thank you to RJ Comer. Um I, I'm gonna say seven times. I didn't look. I'm just guessing. Let me just double say, check. I your, say thanks again. You say thank you. I say thank you. I think it's only five times. All right. Okay. Feels like it's so so much. It does. Um. And then and then we freelance a little bit. And we probably say some more. But I think I'm sure we throw what's in the script. We only say say it five times. So yeah, yeah. Interesting. Right. I yeah. feel like I say it way more than that. I do too. And I'm like, am I saying thank you too much? Like I, we are thankful. But. And you know what? We like for for our listeners at home, we have an outline yeah. that we follow. Like we're not reading with the exception of reading our articles, we're not reading a script. We have an outline of mm-hmm. what needs to be talked about and mentioned. So I know like this last section we ad lib a lot, and I'm mm-hmm. sure we're throwing in a lot of extra oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um all right. First thing, really, yes. really cool. Uh, I'm very tired. <laughs> my my brother and I went turkey hunting this morning at uh, let's see, I was up at four. Oh, yeah. So we were sitting down by a tree a little after five. My brother says I'm going to take in a little nap. So okay. he he yeah. li- starts lying on the ground, um, and I'm playing on my phone, and all of a sudden I hear like a what. <laughs> On it sounded like something hitting plastic, and we had a okay. turkey decoy out there. Okay, I look up, and there's something flying away from our decoy. Okay, and then comes back and hits it again. And I'm like, Steve, oh. did you just hear that? And um, yeah, it was a, a hawk, real attacking. attacking our turkey decoy, like he thought wow. it was a real turkey, and it would scare itself because it it would hit something and realize because, it. Yeah, wasn't. and then another one did it, like a little smaller. The wow. first one was definitely a red tail hawk. Um. And then something way smaller came down to the same thing, like two or three times. And, and you, then the the I don't know if it was the same one kept yeah. coming back or different ones kept coming in. It probably happened between five and ten times. And um, you've never you've never had that happen. I've never had it happen before. Wow! And it was it just happened that that first talk was in the tree right above us, and thought oh, wow. it was going to get an easy meal, and uh, <laughs> was fooled. And I wonder yeah. if it would do it if there were if it would attack if there were. A group of that's what like Steve and I were wondering. I'm like, well, this can't be a good sign 
that like we should be hunting here if this is happening to our decoy. I'm like, what's yeah. happening to the real turkeys? Yeah. I'm like, if there's multiple, maybe they're scared to do it. You figure a hawk is a big bird. Yeah. Like, red-tailed That's, hawk is a big bird, but a turkey is, a, I would think, a bigger bird. Like, I think of and, hawks going after mice, voles, smaller birds, yeah. that type oh, of thing, yeah. not turkey. Yeah. Like, that's a big – I mean, we've we've had – we've had employees here witness a bald eagle trying to take away a, a doe unsuccessfully, yeah. mm-hmm. like realizing it had bitten off more than it could chew. Yeah. It couldn't oh, carry yeah. it away. It was getting too tired. But, um, yeah. like, so I'm not saying it's out of unreasonable, mm-hmm. but I just hadn't heard of that. Yeah. Then my real secret is I I help judge uh, the FFA uh, New Jersey FFA landscape design event and um, and it's it's pretty cool because you get um, we had five uh, of America's youths come okay. through. There's right. a, a representing all the like Union County had a representative. Um, was it Union Bergen uh, Union High School Bergen High School? And then three kids from Freehold. Okay, we're in it, and they all like it's really impressive. You figure they're anywhere from like fourteen to eighteen in this competition, and they're like doing like, landscape design, real landscape designs. Yeah. Um, being and and the guide, uh, uh, the template they or not template, the um, intro they have, a prompt they have is like this couple. It's been similar for the last couple of years. It's like this couple wants is moving to an area, backs up to a men- elementary school. They want they're like. The one's an entomologist. The other one's a, a birder. Okay. They want to have, like, a, a naturalistic native yeah. landscape. Yeah. Um, and then they want to donate, like, a rain garden to the school. Okay. And um, that being said, that like, I'm really impressed by what they're able to do. Yeah. That being said, the amount of not just non-native plants that are oh. used in these designs, but invasive plants that are used in these designs is, like, <laughs> how much research did you do and you mentioned that <laughs> last time. Ju- the last time you yeah, judged yeah. as well yeah. i don't know if we Every talked about it on the it. podcast it was, it, but was, it's- it felt like it was better the the who i think won um who definitely was highest in my rankings um had like an awesome design like the the it was very artistic how yeah. it was designed it was like beautiful the design itself was beautiful imagining what her design actually was was really beautiful like these awesome native um plant beds and all this and but it would just be like oh yeah i have this uh this pollinator garden i built and it has um like butterfly milkweed and uh what's it monarda didyma and um which is uh bee balm scarlet bee balm and all these great native plants like there's a clethra in the back and then yeah there's a whole bunch of barberry (laughs) like oh you're so close you're right there so and, close. And the same thing in the back. Like they had a hedgerow and it was like, oh, we have Virginia Sweet Spire and we have some um, some red cedar and we have this and this. And then we have some Budlia mixed in and some more barberry and, and burning bush. And it's like, oh. wow, you were like – and I, that was my, only, my one comment or the comment I said to her is like it's you're using so many great plants and you're putting them right next to like plants that are, that will are overtake really invasive. Them. Yeah. Um, it's a good and learning, just, good yeah. learning lesson experience. Yeah. Good learning. The other, and I was wondering why this happened. The other thing that was really interesting is uh, again, like the you have a birder was one of the couple. Yeah. They have two kids, okay. uh, like is part of it, and the entomologist 
Um, and the school property has a white oak on it. Like a big white oak yeah. is what it's described okay. as. Three of the five participants cut down the white oak as part of their wow. plan. And I'm like, it was actually uh, Amy Rico, who's a professor okay. uh, or, or instructor at Mercer, uh, County. Mercer County Community College in plant science. Um, she made the comment. She's like, we shouldn't be like just, she's like, you guys don't know, but you should, we, the idea should be, we need to preserve some of these big, yeah. like big native trees. And um, especially Doug, white Doug oaks. Calamese, like, this top is like Lepidoptera the, the host. Yeah. Tree. Yeah. Um, it's like the best wildlife tree. And then, so she's like, hey, it just, it makes me a little sad to see it, but it's like, yeah. it's just a project. So it's not like you're really yeah. doing it, but just keep that in mind yeah. as you, as you mature, how important white oaks are, which was good for me to hear. But too. here's the thing. It, it's a good lesson in high school. Yeah. Oh yeah. Instead of, because depending on where you go for for that for college, it, like plant science isn't really mm-hmm. um, required. So yeah. I'd rather them learn that lesson now than learn it on the job yep. later. Yep. You know, you you guys may have saved some real white oaks yeah. in the future. But it, so, and I, it's it's interesting because it's like it's. These these young adults are just so impressive with how like how well spoken how how they can do this project yeah. and like and it's it's like I said some of them were really beautiful yeah like intricate intricate designs that you would you might not see from like an actual architect yeah. sometimes and um but then at the same time it's like you got a little ways to go too, but it's like the future is bright. I guess yes. what I'm saying It's awesome. you have all these really passionate, motivated young individuals and they just need like a little bit of molding to, to understand how important well, native plants are to our ecosystems. And, um, and we're in really good hands 20 years from now. Kudos for volunteering yeah. and helping. Yeah. Come. Fran, why don't you volunteer and, <laughs> and help out? I've helped in the past. <laughs> I wasn't asked this. I can honestly say I wasn't asked this year. I think I asked you. It's, mm, did you? Yeah. <laughs> all right. But, all right. Well, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. That was four and five. Yeah, there you go. Uh, coming <laughs> coming up next week, we have uh, Uli Lorimer from the Native Plant Trust. So that will be a fantastic episode. It, it's actually, like I, I mentioned, I think the last buzz, it was one of those episodes. I forgot we were, we yep. were recording. So. Yep. Make sure you tune in for then, and until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.